0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Canada announces trade action against Russia and more lethal aid for Ukraine.
1: Which includes up to 4,500 M72 rocket launchers and up to 7,500 hand grenades.
0: Will Canadian companies be compensated if they suffer because of sanctions against Russia?
1: People who uh, invest in other parts of the world are always taking on a certain amount of risk when you do that. Uh, We will certainly uh, look at ways to minimize that risk uh, for Canadians, but at the same time, we cannot hold back on putting everything forward to hold Vladimir Putin to account.
0: And the government announces measures to help Ukrainians looking to come to Canada. We've created a new program that's going to allow people to come here by filing a simple application and going through a uh, expedited security screening process for onward travel to Canada. The advantage to the program we've set up is that there's no limit to the number of applications that it can accept. It's Friday, March the 4th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Joanna Smith. The Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Good morning, Joanna.
1: Good morning, Mark.
0: So let's talk about the latest with regard to Canada's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there's been more trade action against Russia and more support for Ukraine. So uh, let's begin there. What What is Canada doing and, and how is it trying to both help Ukraine and ratchet up the pressure against Russia?
1: So Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland announced uh, more sanctions, really, and it seems like Canada is really upping the economic pressure on Russia. Um, It booted Russia and its ally, Belarus, off its most favoured nation list of trade partners. Um, So Freeland said that means that their exports are subjected to 35% tariffs. Um, And before this change, the only other country not on that list of nations with preferred trading status was North Korea. So this is a pretty Mm. serious move in the international trade front. Um, There will also be uh, new sanctions against 10 executives with Gazprom, a major Russian state-owned energy company, and Rosneft, Russia's leading oil company. Um, So Freeland says that now brings the number of people and entities sanctioned by Canada or in the process of being sanctioned by Canada since 2014, not just in the last week, um, to 1,000. So uh, that's something. And Freeland really said that, you know, she described these new measures as increasing the pressure, specifically on Russia's oligarchs, who she had some strong language for again yesterday. She called them the, the sycophants and enablers in President Putin's inner circle who have... She said, "Lived luxurious lives in the West on on yachts and everything like that, um, while yeah. while all this is going on." Um, and then Trudeau, the Prime Minister, also said that Canada and other close partners are calling for Russia's suspensions from Interpol. So that's that's the news from yesterday on the on the economic measures front.
0: Yeah, and I know some people are asking, "Well, what impact is this going to have on Canadian businesses?" And I know the the government has alluded to the fact that there will be consequences for Canada and. And uh, there, there will be pain felt, economic pain, as a result of everything that's happening with this crisis. Um, and people have asked whether Canadian comp- companies will be compensated if they, if they suffer because of the sanctions. Um, is, is the government talking about anything to support Canadian companies during this, this, uh, this crisis?
1: Well, Freeland did the other day talk about how she was hearkening back to her time uh, dealing with the Trump administration and the renegotiation of the North American Trade Agreement. And she was talking about how, you know, the goal really is to design sanctions that have sort of maximum impact on who you're aiming them at uh, with with minimum impact on, on, on yourselves, right? Um, but she did sort of warn that, that there could, in fact, be some collateral damage there.
0: Yeah. And and what about supporting Ukrainians? I know that, that Canada is sending rocket launchers uh, to Ukraine to help with the fight, and at the same time trying to streamline immigration procedures for refugees who are coming to Canada.
1: That's right. That was a, a really new response um, in terms of, welcoming people away from from a crisis so immigration minister sean Fraser said yesterday that canada would fast track visas emergency travel visas for an unlimited number of those who wish to come to canada from ukraine to work um and then with plans to return home when it's safe he said these visas will take just weeks to process instead of the usual year and he said you know a a more traditional refugee resettlement program would have taken years to get off the ground so it's interesting because it, they haven't really done this sort of thing before, um, in terms at least recently, in terms of uh, responding to other crises that have provoked sort of mass migrations of people. Um, the Canadian Council of Refugees says they really welcome this new approach, and they're arguing that it maybe perhaps should become the way that Canada responds to future refugees crises around the world. That that group has advocated for the government to draft objective criteria that would sort of steer. Can, how Canada responds to immigration emergencies around the world that are that are free of political or racial bias So, you know, their executive director was telling the Canadian press that there's there's been a lot of crisis and emergencies in Africa And yet despite that they haven't seen the same sort of immigration measures to respond as you've seen with, with other recent crises um, and now in Ukraine so Frazier said that one of the things motivating this response was that he'd learned from conversations with the Ukrainian community that many people will actually want to return to their home country when the conflict ends. And that that fits with what the Canada's representative to the UNHCR has been saying as well. That it's it's actually really too early to talk about resettlement. When you when you grant someone refugee status and they can't go home really, right? And and Ukrainians were seeing you know, about a million now who have fled already are are sticking to nearby countries. So so I think this is a way to sort of have people come here, spend, you know, I think you were saying up to two years here working. There was an appeal to businesses to to hire these people and then with the with the With the thought that this is temporary and that when things do settle down, um, they can, in fact, go back home. And there is a permanent aspect as well. Fraser also announced a new reunification program for Ukrainians with family in Canada who wish to come and stay here for the long haul.
0: Yeah. So that's those are the specifics, I guess, Joanna. What what do you read into what the prime minister and the deputy prime minister are saying overall about this situation and the and what the ukrainian pe- people are facing and and how this is uh, this very tense moment is playing out and and how it might be a reset of of the world order at this at this time uh, there there's obviously a great deal of concern about what happens next
1: yeah that's right and and you know just last night reports of You know, fire around a nuclear site definitely got everyone uh, quite a bit Mm. jumpy um, in Ukraine and, and around the world. And, you know, I think when we're hearing language from the prime minister, you know, for example, when he was announcing that Canada and other close partners are calling for Russia's suspension from Interpol, he's saying, you know, we're supporting this because we believe that international law enforcement and cooperation depends on collective commitment to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Mutual Respect. So there, there's lots of talk about situating this conflict in the greater, you know, post World War II rules based order. We we talked last week about how Freeland said that this could be the end of it if if people if the world lets it go too far. So I think everyone is is, you know, framing that conflict in these terms. That it, it, it helps explain why there's so much um, money and attention and, and effort being put in to to respond, right? And um, I would say the other the other thing, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau spoke with uh, his Dutch counterpart, and and they talked about how this is an illegal invasion and it, and it threatens, you know, the readout that came from the Prime Minister's office talked about how this threatens peace and order um, in Europe and around the world. So I think. They are sort of talking about this being, I don't want to use the phrase, not just another war, not just another conflict, because conflict and war is terrible and, and deadly and devastating to, to all involved, wherever it is around the world. But in terms of Canada's relationship with the world and, and how we understand Europe and NATO and, and that sort of rule-based order to work, it's, it's, it's clearly something that has the potential to really shake all of that up yeah. and change. Change what we know about the
0: world and how it works. All right, closer to home, Joanna, uh, the, the members of parliament have been hearing testimony at a committee from uh, some of the organizations, the crowdfunding platforms that that were raising money uh, to support the freedom convoy. And uh, it's interesting, of course, because there was one platform that, under pressure, shut down its fundraising uh and another that went ahead and continued and uh so there was some interesting uh perspective shared i guess uh at uh, at uh, at this committee meeting on Thursday.
1: That's right. So one of those platforms was GoFundMe um and that's the one that had canceled an earlier co- campaign to support the, and fundraise the so-called Freedom Convoy, and it had brought in more than $10 million. Um, GoFundMe ended up pulling the plug on the initial fundraiser, um, and, you know, they were they were telling the committee, the president of GoFundMe was telling the committee that, you know, when they first started looking at it, they believed that it did not violate their, their terms of service, um, and then it was really after... You know their decision to release one million dollars to a protest organizer um, nearly two weeks after the fundraiser had begun. That they noticed around that point that the situation, you know, or, or after that decision had been made, rather, that the situation had taken started to take a turn. Um, GoFundMe was saying things immediately. And very rapidly changed, communication changed, information on the facts changed, the convoy itself changed, and so they're saying that, you know, we, re- we responded to those changes. So they were sort of defending their initial decision to allow this uh, fundraising page to go ahead and to release that $1 million to the organizer, um, and then sort of explaining why they ended up reversing course on that. Um, and so then after they did pull the plug on the campaign. Um, another site uh, that sort of describes itself as a, a Christian fundraising site called Give, Send, Go um, then became the main fundraising vehicle. So so their founders, uh, her siblings named Jacob Wells and Heather Wilson, were at that committee, um, and they were they were saying, you know, that they they believe it was actually wrong of GoFundMe to pull the plug on the initial fundraiser, and they said that many of the campaigns they host turned to them after being removed due to, quote, political beliefs. And they were critical of the federal liberal government for not reaching out directly to them um, with any concerns. And they also sort of said, you know, we really believe that if Trudeau had just come out and spoken with the protesters when they got there, then a lot of this could have been avoided. They described the, the protests, which, you know, local leaders um, described as a weeks-long occupation of the city. They described it as being largely... Peaceful, and that there were some efforts by, you know, a fringe percentage. They said of the group to to ruin it, um, and they really sort of underscored that they they believe strongly in in free speech, and that's the reason that they wanted to to keep it going ahead. And they really they really stood by that, um, even if there were perhaps some unsavory groups that had used the same yeah. before.
0: All right, very interesting. Joanna, I appreciate you breaking it all down for us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mark.
0: That's Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. The blame
1: for this situation is solely on Vladimir Putin.
0: Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At iPolitics, Alan Freeman asks if Western unity will be enough to stop the carnage in Ukraine. Freeman writes... Vladimir Putin has achieved a lot, not just in convincing the world that he's a lunatic in the image of Hitler and Stalin. He's also made the inconceivable real by cementing Western solidarity. All this newfound determination by NATO members and other democracies to unite in the face of tyranny and barbarism will serve the world well in the medium and long terms. But it's the short term that worries me. Ukraine's defenders may be brave and determined, but they remain seriously outgunned, and their supply lines are vulnerable to Russia's phalanxes of men and armor. In the National Post, Sabrina Maddow argues a new dangerous era of reproliferation could follow the Russian invasion. Maddow writes, There's growing fear over what Putin may do with Russia's nuclear arsenal. But the biggest nuclear threat may not be Russia at all. It may be a global reversal of the nuclear disarmament movement, which has seen many nations either give up their nuclear weapons or agree not to pursue nuclear programs, largely based on the notion deliberate invasions were a relic of the past. Unfortunately for Ukraine, they're clearly not. In the Toronto Star, David Olive argues, Russia's pariah status will create opportunities for Canada. Olive writes, It is impossible to underestimate the ferocity of anger toward Vladimir Putin, and by extension Russia, in the world's political capitals. Most countries that imposed new sanctions against Russia last week are preparing to impose even more. Meanwhile, Canada is a leading alternative supplier of the most essential Russian exports. The world will never again trust Putin about anything. And for a long time, Russia will suffer for Putin's mistaken belief that Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas would prevent the world from rising up against her. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. Government officials will be holding a news conference to provide an update on COVID-19. National Revenue Minister Diane Le Boutelier will hold a virtual news conference to announce investments to improve safety at St. Hubert, Mont-Joli and La Grande Rivière airports. And Indigenous Services Minister Patti Haidu will make an announcement to support electric vehicle charging infrastructure in northern Ontario. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, March the 4th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.